0: We are taking a deep dive into this topic of the kindness and the severity of God based upon Romans 11, 22. And one of the things we know to do when we are approaching any text within scripture is to read it within its uh, context. It's always such a uh, folly to just take a passage, take it out of its context, and try to figure it out. That's not biblical study. That's figuring it out. That's doing something other than that. That's not wise biblical interpretation. So anytime we approach this or any text, we want to read it within its immediate context and then within its overall context. And so what I want to do today is I just want to give you a brief eight-point sub-summary of where we've come so far. We've been approaching this topic of the kindness and severity of God for several weeks now, and we've done that by first stepping back and getting a good idea of what Paul is saying, what is his argument throughout the letter to the, to the Romans. And, uh, and by that, we'll create a really important context, a framework, if you will, so that when we return to Romans 11:22, we'll have a much better idea of what Paul's argument is, whereby we can interpret this text within then its immediate context of Romans 9, 10, and 11. So, uh, that will be the next step. But before we go there, before we begin to take on Romans 9, 10, and 11, and come to a, a much clearer understanding of what it means by the kindness and severity of God, I want to give you this eight-point sub-summary of Paul's argument in the letter to the Romans. And if you're on sermonaudio.com, uh, there will be a PDF attached to so you can print it out and read it and, and maybe keep it in your Bible during the study. Um, I'm sorry, if you're on Spotify or some other platform, that won't be readily available, but I will today read the Scripture passages that reference my points, so at least you'll have those. You can look those up for yourself. Okay, so point one, <clears throat> Paul's Gospel was in the minority view. The gospel that he preached in the letter to the Romans, Paul's gospel was in the minority view during his day and remains the minority view today. This is why he proclaimed, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now that's Romans 1, 16 through 17. That's the first thing we discovered, is that Paul's view, Paul's gospel, his gospel that he preached as did the other apostles was in the minority view. So point two, Paul's gospel was considered even shameful, scandalous, even heresy by the majority of professed Christian leaders in his day and remained so to in our day. And the reference for that is Romans 3 5 through 8. Now obviously, there, there is much more throughout the letter to the Romans that strengthens that. But that's a very important point. Paul's gospel was considered shameful, scandalous, and even heresy. There are those who considered, especially in the, amongst the Jewish community, Jewish Christian community, that Paul was a heretic. There are some within the, uh, the Greek Christian community that have thought he was a fool, that he, he, he really would lacked credential and lacked credibility as an apostle. So we see here that both the gospel and those who preach it are not going to be among the popular ones. We're not going to be those uh, who attract crowds of adoring fans. Uh, to, to follow Jesus, if you, must have to be, if you must be a part of the big thing, the big masses, if you must be among the many and enjoy lots of popular accolades, then you'll have a hard time embracing the gospel. Okay, point three. Paul's gospel was viewed as shameful because it eliminated any role for man in attaining the necessary righteousness by which one draws near to God. Let me say that again. Paul's gospel was viewed as shameful because it eliminated any role for man in attaining the necessary righteousness by which one draws near to God. Romans 3, 21 through 31. In other words, Paul was preaching the righteousness of Christ alone as wholly sufficient, and it was by faith that we are united to Christ and his righteousness. So we are saved by righteousness, not of our own. We are saved by Christ's righteousness. We can say we are justified by Christ by the means of faith whereby we are united to him in his righteousness. You can begin to get an idea already why the severity of God is so severe because having sent his son having died on the cross having raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand, having sent the spirit to indwell his people, that anyone now then that would reject Christ's Righteousness, the gift of righteousness in Christ in favor of seeking their own righteousness will certainly come under the severity of God. Point four. The religious mind of the natural man, by that I mean a person without the spirit, a person who has not been born of the spirit, insists that the role of man in attaining the necessary righteousness, be the vital contributing factor apart from which God cannot save you. So, in other words, the religious mind of the natural man, the person without the spirit, really understands that grace is important, faith is important, that God must do his part. But, man's part is, in fact, the vital contributing factor, apart from which God cannot save anyone. So all the glory goes to man, then, and not to God. That's why Paul's gospel was so widely rejected, because he had none of that. Point five. Paul's gospel was rejected by the majority, yet the elect heard and were saved by the apostolic form of teaching. Paul's gospel was rejected by the majority, yet those whom God to whom God intervened, those who were born of God were saved by the apostolic form of teaching, Romans 6:15 through 23. In other words, there was a very specific form of teaching. Paul says that in Romans 6:17, very specific form of teaching he says that these Roman Christians believed from the heart. They embraced it fully. And that made all the difference. And point six tells us then, Paul's gospel presents progressive sanctification, that is to say, growth in Christlikeness, as the necessary result of justification by faith, whereby we are moved from slaves to sin, to slaves to righteousness. And there's no third option. We who were once slaves to sin are now slaves to righteousness because by the mercies of God and the grace at work, at work in our heart, mind, and will, we were justified by faith. And progressive sanctification in the Christ-likeness is the necessary result of that justification so that we are now slaves to righteousness. Okay, point seven. The elect of God are known not by their doctrinal statement alone, as important as that is, but by their progress in Christ-like character as well. Romans 8, 28 through 30. The elect of God are not known by their doctrinal statement only, as important as that is, but by their progress in Christ-like character as well, as well Romans 8, 28 through 30. So, we can know everything, but if we don't have a heart change, we really don't know as we need to know. So, it's, it's the heart that needs to change. It's our character being transformed by the work of God in us, by the work of the Spirit in us, through the inspired text that we need to look for. That tells us. Now, let me just caution you. We have to avoid the other extreme, and that is perfectionism. So, we grow in Christlikeness, however halting, however slow, no matter how much we stumble, what we're looking for is progress, not perfection. We have to be careful to avoid perfectionism or some harsh, soft legalism. All we're looking for is progress. And, and, and then to be grateful, to give God the glory. Whenever we see our character and our mind and our will be more and more reflective of that which we see in Christ in the Gospels, we can give glory to God. Okay, finally, point eight. Saving faith begins with the mind, in the mind. But must move to the heart to be a saving faith. Saving faith begins in the mind, but must move to the heart to be saving. The heart is in the primacy, though the mind is in the priority of order. Now, that may be a little confusing, so let me explain. The mind is the gateway to the heart, with a changed heart as the goal. But it all begins by having right knowledge. That's kind of what I just said above about that form of teaching, right knowledge. Now, this is incredibly important today because we are just awash in Hollywood and various and sundry false teachers presenting images of Jesus so that most Christians are running around today professing to love a Jesus that is a figment of their imagination, not the biblical Christ. It's really tragic, really scary. So right knowledge, the truth in the intellect, precedes truth in the heart. And we know it's reached our heart because we have an experiential sense of trust. We grow in our trust in the Lord. And we realize that we can't put our trust in ourselves. We can't put our trust in men. We can't put ourselves in religious tradition. We can't trust anything but Jesus Christ himself for the necessary righteousness to approach God. And when we do, we discover, of course, that his righteousness is all we've ever needed. Let me give you a couple of texts. Romans eight five eight five through eight and Romans twelve one through two. Well there you go. Those are eight points that if you could just play this back two or three times, maybe Review it, write it down, uh, give it some thought. Realize that that's now going to be the context. This is the overall context by which, in the next lesson, we will begin our study of Romans 9, 10, and 11. I'm very excited about that because I believe that we're marching towards that great doxology of Paul at the very end of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God in the emphatic exclamation mark. I want that for you, I want that for me, and I'm excited that we're in this journey together. May the Lord bless you and strengthen you as we continue to do this deep dive into the kindness and severity of God. Amen.